This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker at Core Brain Journal one more time. And what we're doing is we're bringing the literati to our listening audience globally. It's really quite interesting. And, uh, you know, I regret to say that our current guest today, we had a previous really excellent recording and then my machine turned inside out right while we were talking. So we're, we're back for a second one with Mel Schwartz. Mel, thank you so much for coming on board. We really appreciate it. I get the delightful experience of being with you twice, Chuck. You're very kind. Mel is a very, very interesting guy. I mean, I was so sorry that that first one didn't run out because we had such a great conversation going. But, you know, the good thing about great conversations is they can certainly be repeated. It's not going to be the same thing. It's going to be different. But what's really interesting about Mel is he takes a subject that I've been very interested in for many years, dating back into the 60s, to tell you the truth, on how physics and physics principles are related to the evolution of relationship management. And Mel goes into far greater detail. He's really been, it's been an educational process for me. I know it will be for you. He's got some great language nodules, things to think about that just plant themselves in your brain and you can bring them up at a dinner conversation. It would be totally interesting because it has application in everyday life. What we're talking about is is really rethinking the process of self-management. So I'm going to introduce him formally after a couple of quick words from our sponsors, and we'll go on from there. Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Direct Health Access Laboratory. They are international leaders in molecular testing for mind science details in treatment failure. With over 3 million studies, they provide deep experience with the usefulness of measuring for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges. You can hear more about that over at corebrainjournal.com forward slash 115. Dr. Walsh talks about it. Their innovative insights, that's a typo there, innovative insights improve treatment priorities through a global service with a molecular focus. Connect your provider with a PDF on how and why these insightful molecular tests Work for treatment failure at dhalab.com forward slash core, just as it sounds. Core Brain Journal is also sponsored by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia, where they provide fresh biomedical options to address the complexity of child and adolescent treatment failure from behavioral imbalances to substance abuse. They provide both national and international connections. Most interesting is their deep focus on data-driven biomedical advances that measure specifics on what to do, again, with treatment failure. It's a total focus, even after multiple uh, hospitalizations or extensive outpatient work. Kids can sometimes just not make it, even though, even though you're doing the best you can. So review their innovative programs at Barry Robinson, B-A-R-R-Y, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. More information coming later in the program. Now, let me introduce you to Mel Schwartz, who is a licensed clinical social worker, master's philosophy, is a psychotherapist, marriage counselor, speaker, and author in private practice in beautiful downtown Westport, Connecticut. Great place to visit. And he has an office in Manhattan for over 20 years. He's an emerging voice in the field of personal transformation 
and is one of the first practicing psychotherapists to integrate the principle, get this, of quantum physics into a psychotherapeutic approach. Mel earned his graduate degree from Columbia University and is the author of a new book, The Possibility Principle, How Quantum Physics Can Improve the Way You Think, Live, and Love. And he also has another book, The Art of Intimacy, The Pleasure of Passion. Mel has written well over 100 articles, read by nearly 2 million people. He's been a keynote speaker at Yale University and presented at TEDx Beacon Street on a talk called Transcending Anxiety, which I'm going to load on the show notes page. You don't have to go look for it. It's going to be right there on the show notes page. He also works with individuals globally through Skype connections virtually. So with that, Mel, let's get started. I mean, a person listening to this can say, what in the heck, Mel, are you talking about? Physics and human beings and personal relationships. I thought physics were neutrons, protons, and electrons. What are you talking about there? So let's take a moment to see your journey. Take, the, take us down the narrative of how you got there into such what appears to be arcane, but such a very ultimately practical search for answers. Well, in just a moment, I'll take you along on my personal journey here. But just in responding to what you said, who would ever think that we live our lives according to the dictates of Newton and Descartes' machine-like universe? Mm. But we do, mm. and I will touch upon that. So going back 20-some-odd years ago, I had recently divorced, had two young children who were living primarily with me. But on a particular weekend, they were with their mom. I woke up. It was a sunny, beautiful spring day. And I decided to go for a bike ride. As I got into that ride, I started to get anxious. I had anxiety-producing thoughts around the uncertainty of what my life would be like, not with my kids all the time. And as a single man, divorced in midlife, an anxiety attack began to set in. I had never had one before, at least didn't recall having one. So I turned around and headed back home. I had no idea what relief that would give me got into my home. Absent-mindedly, I pulled a book off the shelf, which had been unread. It was called The Turning Point by Fridjof Capra, a quantum physicist. Well, within a couple of pages, I was mystified by what I was reading. I was reading about a shift to worldview, which was upending our beliefs about reality. And I started to read about these core principles of quantum physics, which are uncertainty, We've been trained to seek certainty and predictability in our lives, and I'll share in a little while the host of troubles that that heaps upon us. And that uncertainty leads to complete potentiality, what I call new possibility. And lastly, the concept of inseparability. In quantum physics, that's called non-locality. It means, counterintuitive as it may sound, reality and the universe is one inseparable, undivided whole just like Eastern mystical religions have always told us, or Carl Jung's uh, term, unus mundus, one world. Well, I was fascinated. My anxiety attack was gone. I was full of passion. It's now 20 some odd years later, and it's never stopped. So what I prompted myself to do was I needed to change my beliefs according to these new principles so that I could live in a congruent reality. And then I altered my thinking to align with these new beliefs. And I began to integrate these approaches into my therapy practice, I think, with tremendous results. So I spent six or seven years writing my new book, The Possibility Principle, 
which really suggests that by applying these principles, we can think differently, apprehend reality differently, communicate differently, and relate differently, all to our benefit. So I'm not a scientist. I don't deal in mathematical formulas. These are simply conceptual ways of rethinking reality. You know, Mel, it's so interesting because I was reading a book, and it really wasn't in preparation for this conversation, but as we're getting back into the conversation, one of the things I was interested in the book was the whole history of uh, Platonic thinking and Aristotle and the relationship between Plato and Aristotle. And just to say a couple of words about it, Plato, of course, had this larger picture of the universe, and the oneness was a Plato concept originally. And Aristotle got down to labels and particulars. And so much of our science has gone down an Aristotelian path, which you and I talked a little bit about last time, and I won't belabor uh, that conversation right at this moment. But what you're saying is that we've had some illusions chasing Aristotelian thinking, which is really more black and white. And we really need to see the possibilities that exist out of the dogma that we have been unwittingly, no, no malice of intent, but we've the whole field of science has been based more on this categorical reductionistic thinking. And if we start thinking about the possibilities, we're thinking about things outside of the black and white training that we've had, regardless of what field we're in. It doesn't matter whether it's psychoanalysis or our psychopharmacology or relationship management. That's precisely the point. So Aristotelian thinking is what I very simply refer to as either or thinking. When I am asked an either-or question, is it this or is it that, I can't answer. I've trained my mind to not default into either-or thinking. You see, if reality is one inseparable whole and my mind is wanting to seek and apprehend wholeness, I have to resist either-or thinking. It's just a question that divides reality up into small compartments and doesn't even realize that we're creating those compartments. They do not exist. Look at the term mind-body connection. I've given a talk with a large number of people who have come to hear my opinion on it, and I opened up by saying there is no mind-body connection because, folks, there's no mind-body separation. Why would we ever think mind and body were separate? Other than Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, and he severed mind and body. So the word connection loses its validity with mind and body, and arguably, the word connection loses its meaning on a much larger level. So either or thinking, are you good or are you bad? Am I right or are you wrong? We have to be really cautious of that kind of thinking, and they speak to objective realities. And yet we're coming to see that in an interparticipatory reality with, with no division, there's no basis of objectivity. Everything is subjectively constructed. So there's a relative, a relative aspect of objectivity in certain contexts. And one of the things that we were talking about last time, which is a favorite wrinkle on what you're talking about right now, is the relationship to categorical thinking, either or thinking, only this, never that, always this, that sort of thing. The issue is really the concept of time as it places itself into the context of our lives. I mean, what happens is we actually, most of the time when we're talking either or, the additional problem that we have and the illusion that we're working with is that we're devoid of thinking about time. And the time is not in the picture. 
So instead of saying, here's the entirety which actually brings in the concept of time, we're not going to bring in the concept of it's only this, and we're not going to think about tomorrow, yesterday, or whatever. So it gets kind of confusing from that point. And that, of course, then leads to the concept of a static, immutable, unchanging reality. Whereas it appears, you know, the very question of reality, what do we mean? If we start a sentence and we say reality is, I think we're making a categorical error right there. Right so. It appears more that reality is perpetually in this reality-making process. It is reconstituting itself every moment. I used to say change is the only constant in the universe, and I realized the error to that, because the word change suggests there's also a moment where there's an absence of change. Oh, yeah. I, I no longer accept that. Flow. <laughs> Flow is the norm in the universe. So these words are very, very important because our thoughts are comprised of words. We need to pay close attention to these words. And on personally intimate levels, they're the source of what we're feeling with one another as well. Well, it's so true because if we think reductionistically, we're going to be in arguments. I mean, polarization is based on reductionistic thinking. So if we're talking about relationships, I'm looking forward to hearing you talk more about this, but I'm just taking our conversation into the immediate obvious application is that if we're not thinking about time, we're not thinking about our evolution as human beings. We're thinking, and this is one of my pet peeves with the entire diagnostic system present in psychiatry today, and it's nobody's fault. It's just that we took the science. And, uh, you know, it's excellent, but it's simply not enough. If we insert the concept of time or the application of the principle of time into thinking about diagnostic categories, then the whole thing is in got to be going into a different flow for sure because we're going to lose it. And certainly, and now we can move even deeper into the whole notion of diagnosis. A diagnosis really are some words applied to describe what the practitioner thinks he is seeing in that person. So true. Using it that way in the descriptive way, I have no issue. But you see, what we do in our culture is we turn the diagnosis into an actual thing. So I hear another therapist conferring, or someone comes to me for some supervision, and they say, well, my patient Jane has ADHD. And I say, I don't understand. What do you mean? How can they have it? It isn't a real thing. It is four words used to describe a whole complex of behaviors that we see, which may be due to innumerable influences. So that concept is called reification. Alfred North Whitehead called it the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Our mind makes something up, a diagnosis, and then thinks it's real. So mind is not taking responsibility for what it constructed. Therefore, the diagnosis can be very constraining. So if I'm working with someone and I don't diagnose, but if they ask me, I'll be very sensitive and they'll say, well, your behaviors conform to what they call ADHD. We need to represent what thought is telling us because otherwise literal thought tricks us in that it's telling us the objective truth. Participatory thought is I'm having a thought and my thought is telling me such and such. That's representative. And it's a lot more valid way of having a relationship with your thoughts and communicating again in relationship. If I say to someone in a relationship and we're having some challenges, 
And I, as they're talking, I say, you know, while you were talking, I had a thought come up or I had a feeling come up. Let me tell you what my feeling is. That's acceptable. But if I turn my thought or feeling into a fact and then tell them you are such and such, we're screwed. Absolutely so true. I mean, and then, of course, they're missing the whole concept of percentages. You know, if you're going to make a diagnosis, even that behavioral piece might be true in 20% of their personality, but it doesn't cover that other 80%. And you're, I don't know if you knew that I'm, this is a definite point of mine that I totally agree with. And it's why I I enjoy talking to you so much. And that is the whole issue of unmanageable cognitive abundance being the activity of the mind. So really, if the activity of the mind is attention abundance disorder, that's really paying attention to the process rather than the phenotypic outside look of are they focused and are they hyperactive or are they inattentive in this context doesn't say anything about brain function, doesn't say anything about their underlying personality. And in truth, in truth, and the reason so many people are so unhappy with psychiatry, it's disrespectful. It's completely, completely dehumanizing. I'll never forget during my internship in grad school, I was working with a young man who was about to be medicated for um, ADHD and hyperactivity. And I asked questions that typically no one had ever asked. I asked him, what do you have for dinner? And what do you drink? And what do you either drink from dinner to bedtime? He had trouble falling asleep. Well, the answer was he drank about five or six Coca-Colas between dinner and bedtime. But he was going to be medicated for sleep disorder. (laughs) So, you know, what you look for is what you see. So true. I think that was Gerta, if I remember correctly. (laughs) 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 You got some deep thoughts. And I was also thinking of Heraclitus, 500 B.C., Yes. You can't stick your foot in the same river twice. Yes, the river is continually changing. And if you don't respect that phenomenon, then you're going to be thinking, you're going to be thinking categorically reductionistically in in an Aristotelian manner. And so the opposite, I've played with a word to evoke for me the opposite of reductive thinking. And some years ago, I started to teach my process and I called it emergent thinking. For me, the quality of emergent is a bubbling up rather than a narrowing down, which is reductive. And that's what I seek to apprehend. And the people I work with, that kind of thinking also requires a blending of intellect and intuition, whereby I don't just focus on intellect. And by intuition, I don't mean hunch work or guesswork, but there's a deeper way of knowing. You know, there are many ways of knowing. Cognitive rational is one way of knowing. Transpersonal is another way of knowing. We need to broaden our scope in terms of our different ways of apprehending knowledge and insight. That's so true. Take a moment to just tell our listeners about transpersonal because I think that's so germane to this conversation, and that's a word maybe off of the scorecard for some of our colleagues here. Well, well, transpersonal, the word trans meaning through and above. So transpersonal ways of knowing don't are not relegated simply to intellect. I'll share this story. Many years ago when the tsunami hit Indonesia, I was on vacation with my family in uh, Baja, California. And I read this little excerpt from the New York Times which said there was no reported death of wildlife. The animals knew the tsunami was coming. They had a sixth sense. So I went up to my room and I started to write an article which suggested that humans once had this sixth sense as well. We lost it. We limited our thinking to one way, which was reductive. 
As I'm writing the article, a bird flies in the window of my room and perches itself on the armrest of my chair. Now, I felt so excited. This was looking to me to be what Carl Jung referred to as synchronicity, that the universe, that when mind and consciousness and the material universe temporarily act in alignment, that's what we call synchronicity. And I then continued to write my article, The Bird Flew Out, and I, I sent an email to a colleague who writes books on synchronicity. And I asked him what he thought. He said, well, that's a great example of synchronicity. The nature of the universe was confirming what I was onto. He said, but it goes further than that, Mel. He said, when I received your email, I was reading a book by Rupert Sheldrake called How Animals Can Predict Earthquakes. Oh, now, Sheldrake God. is a biologist in England who's written many such books, and he and I then conferred and spoke together at Yale on the topic. So this other way, this transpersonal way, which cannot be reduced to logic. In my book, I talk about the concept of quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is that when two photons have a shared state, no matter how far apart you separate them, their state is still shared. They are as one. They could be half a universe apart. So metaphorically, I borrowed that uh, concept of inseparability and suggest, you know, picture a couple. And she's in Paris and he's in San Francisco. And they're married or brother and sister. And she falls and breaks her ankle. And at that moment, he feels a pain in his ankle. That's a transpersonal way of communicating. It's not linear. That there is a way in which consciousness is not limited to our brain activity. By the way, my belief is that the brain doesn't produce consciousness. Here's the way I would describe this. You're walking at the beach, and you look behind you, and you see your footprint in the sand. It would be folly to think the sand produced your footprint. Your footprint left its mark in the sand. Similarly, there's so much evidence coming out of neuroscience now that suggests that your thought leaves its mark on your brain chemistry, which is why we see the brain activity of, of people who practice meditation being altogether different. So I take this as all good news because it means we're not hardwired. Um, hardwired is a word coming from Newton's machine-like universe. We're not comprised of wires. And when a couple says, can you repair our marriage? I say, you're not a machine. This is not about repair or wire. We don't have loose screws. Those words speak to the machine-like picture of the universe, which from my position is what causes depression and anxiety and malaise at epidemic proportions. Well, because the utilitarian value of the machine model is not sufficient to actually explain what's going on. So one of my favorite words, a couple of words that I like, I wrote about in my first book back in 92, was synesthetic and diacritic. So what happens with synesthesia, which is a neurologic activity where a person has connections between things that are, they're connected, but they're not consciously connected somatically. So a person can be synesthetic and and have a reaction to, to something that they experience, but they, it would occur in a different way neurologically. And diacritic, of course, is applying cognition to a situation which is more Aristotelian, kind of separating things and moving them around, mechanistic the way you were talking about it. You very likely know those words. I just thought I'd say them for our audience because you get a kick out of them. It's the same direction in terms of solving a problem with two human beings has got to be approached from a more comprehensive point of view than a he said, she said. 
the complexities, the nuances, and the subtleties are arguably somewhere along the line of infinite. So being able to apprehend what the issue is and hammer it out, it falls apart. And it doesn't mean we can't work on issues. But just to further the point I was making about machine-like reality mechanism, so from Newton's worldview, reality is comprised as as a giant machine. And we become separate cogs in that machine, only impacted by cause and effect. Now, as separate cogs in the machine, we'd suffer from a lack of connectivity, meaning, and purpose. Profound sense of disconnect, which is the source of depression. At the core, depression is feeling alienated and disconnected. Quantum physics heals that. It is all one inseparable flowing whole, and we're part of that. Secondly, Newton introduced the concept of determinism. This is the theme of my TEDx talk on overcoming anxiety. So determinism, which serves a purpose to an extent, but from my work, invariably, when I work with people who have anxiety disorders, it comes from their need to know the future in advance. They became stuck. They live life as though they're playing a chess match, calculating their move, afraid of a mistake. They're not in the flow of life. But quantum physics tells us reality is uncertain. I welcome the uncertainty. Uncertainty means I'm in the flow. I'm jumping into the stream of things and everything is possible. So I see the principles of quantum physics as alleviating and healing much of the damage done from the machine-like paradigm. That is such an interesting point. I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm going to ask you another question in just a minute. We're going to have a break here, but the question, and you've been alluding to this a little bit as we've been talking, and I, I think these examples that you're giving are so excellent, but I'm going to ask you when we get back, we're going to take a, a brief break here. But when I get back, what I want to ask is to please go into a bit further some examples of the application of these principles. I think we're talking about some things that are, you know, for some of our listeners, pretty arcane. You and I have been thinking about this for a long period of time. I mean, for many, many years. So it's fun to have a meeting with a person like yourself who's kind of on the same wavelength. But I think the real value in Core Brain Journal is when our listeners get how they can actually apply it in their daily lives. So we're going to take a brief break and we'll be back to hear the answer to that question, folks, in just a minute. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. 
Well, welcome back, folks. Here we are with Mel Schwartz from up in Westport, Connecticut, Manhattan. He's also available virtually, globally, for consultation. I mean, he's a guy you're going to want to talk to, and all of his connections are going to be both on the show notes, and we're going to have closure at the end of this to talk about specifically how you can get a hold of Mel to talk about some of these things. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in it? Because what he's talking about is opportunities for understanding any person that you're having a conflict with. I mean, the issue is it's opportunistic in the positive way because so many of us are so stuck, treatment failure, with our own limited concepts of what we need to do. So the question I wanted to ask, Mel, is give us a couple more examples of taking some of what you've been talking about into an application with, for example, uh, relationship entanglements, misunderstandings, processing a marriage or, or any relationship? I think that most of the problems we experience in relationship comes from our belief in objectivity. Now, objectivity, of course, comes from Newton's worldview. Through quantum physics, we see there is no objectivity. Now, it starts on the personal level. Before we move to the relationship issue, we have to understand the nature of thought. The most important relationship you will ever have isn't with your children, your parents, your spouse. The relationship that will impact you more than any other is with your thoughts. They can be your ally or your antagonist. We need to understand the nature of thought. Now, as I alluded to earlier, thought tricks us in that it's telling us the truth. We don't realize we're having a thought and we become the thought. So in my book, I explain to the readers how we can apprehend a nanosecond where we can see the thought. Now, if I can see my thought, I am thinking. If I can see my thought, there is a space, there is a time, opportunity in which wisdom, intuition can prevail. So in relationship, in communication, if I say to the other person, let's say we were starting to get into a heated conversation, I want to speak non-objectively. I want to speak representing what my thoughts and feelings are. If I say, I feel, you can't tell me I'm wrong because I didn't make an objective statement. I said, I feel, I feel this. Do you care how I feel? Yes, I care how you feel. Then let's move into the feeling and what caused me to feel this way. So simply put, we are starting our sentences more often with I than with you. Now, in romantic relationship, when two people meet and become lovers, there is a sense of oneness akin to quantum entanglement. We are as one. What happens to that, that sense of love? Well, falling in love is all full of uncertainty. Oscar Wilde said uncertainty is the essence of romance. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of merit to that thought. But what do we do once we secure the relationship? We go back to Newton's predictability and certainty. We drive the passion and the romance out of the relationship. So we can begin to engage a communication which is uncertain because uncertainty provokes possibility. Things don't get mundane and boring and predictable when we apply uncertainty relationship. Of course, you need to know what time the the train leaves and what time the kids have to be at school. I'm not talking about that. But come back to the notion of inseparability from quantum physics. Inseparability means that the other person and I are as one. We share the same state. From that perspective, empathy and compassion flow. Because if I can tend to the other, 
be kind, sensitive, and loving to the other, that must come back and benefit me. But from Newton's worldview, where we are separate entities, only causally connected, that leads to greed, avarice, competition, right and wrong, who's going to win. The whole paradigm sets up the structural demise of relationship. So through the principles of quantum physics, uncertainty and inseparability, we actually have the science to underscore living by the golden rule. Because if I can benefit you, it must come back and benefit me. The last chapter of my book, I introduce a new way of language, underscoring these pieces. It is what is referred to as E-prime language, perhaps first suggested in the great book Science and Sanity by Korbziski, General Semantics. The suggestion is that we communicate without using the two B verbs. Is, am, were, was, be, why? Number one, those verbs speak of an unchanging, immutable, objective reality. Well, one, we're not going to transition into this new worldview if our thoughts are still clinging to Newtonian objective reality. We need to free our thinking. In terms of relationships, it does everything to change those objective words. So instead of saying, you are unsensitive, emphasis on are, Statement of fact, unchanging. Mm -hmm. Now, if I say that to you, you're going to be defensive, come back at me, and we will get nowhere. Now, if I remove the word R and I say, I often find you insensitively talking to me. I experience you as insensitive. That's a subjective statement that you made and said to me, what surprises me? Why is that? Well, I then start to explain it. It opens up a shared inquiry. It's the art of relationship and the art of communicating is an open, shared, inquiring together. We can thrive that way instead of the reductive, objective way of communicating, which shuts everything down, it devalues us, and we end up invalidating each other. So this language shift coming from quantum physics is at the heart of thriving in relationship, if not even greater issues, like the sensibility of the world as we know it let alone government. Yeah, underscored exclamation point. <laughs> we don't have anybody in our current political scene that's thinking reductionistically and categorically, of course. you know. No, of course not. And you know, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking about it so very eloquently, I think you did a great job of outlining the real promise in thinking less reductionistically on an interpersonal level because the paradox is that a person would be in therapy and what the whole therapy adventure would be, who's right and who's wrong. I mean, that is the way they go in. I'm going to show you that I am right and you are wrong, nothing personal. And I'm going to acquiesce to coming in here with you to really make my point because I'm going to find this person who's going to agree with me and is going to get caught in the right and wrongness of this discussion. And then the paradox that I was alluding to is if you're stuck in that kind of thinking, there is no growth. Because the growth, there's no opportunity for growth because you're, you're stuck living in a re reductionistic concept of what you're trying to accomplish. And there's no growth in it because there are no other possibilities. It's, you know, it's either one way or the other, and there are no other possibilities. Well, in a relationship, if I have to win, that means you have to lose. Well, how's that going to work out? Does that sound like a happy relationship? <laughs> if both people are intent on turning their partner or the other person into a loser? The whole premise is bizarre. 
It's so true. So true. Oh my gosh. What a, what, and, and you said, you said that so well, because as you were talking about really in the physics application there is there is a large sea of possibilities out there that would be opportunities if a person were thinking proactively, constructively, I don't know the synonym exactly. You probably haven't because you've been using, you, you work in that language, but the possibilities and the opportunity are not in thinking reductionistically. Certainly not. And it speaks to how we get stuck and corralled into our beliefs about ourselves. An almost universal struggle that I experience, not just professionally, but with friends and others, is people struggle to change. And to change what is the question. We have core beliefs about ourselves, but we often don't ask ourselves, how did I come to this belief about myself? And what makes me think this belief about myself is true or accurate? Now, the beliefs we have about ourselves and others script how we experience our life. So in my book, I explain how we come to develop core fundamental beliefs about ourselves and how we can break free of them if we choose to. In quantum physics, there is something called wave collapse. Put simply, light has a dual capacity. Light can exist either as a wave or as a particle. Now, as a wave in quantum physics, that represents pure potentiality. But when you observe the wave, the wave literally collapses and becomes a particle, a fixed thing. So I had a thought quite some time ago, metaphorically, that something similar happens to us in our lives. We come into life in a state of rather pure potential. Our identity isn't shaped yet. Personality isn't formed. But things occur typically early in life and childhood. They may be traumatic or they may be subtle, but they cause us to think of ourselves in a certain way. This becomes similar to a wave collapse. Our potential becomes limited. For example, I was working with a woman who shared with me that when she was about nine years old, her mother told her that her pregnancy with her was an accident. She was unwanted. That was a wave collapse. 30, 40 years later, this woman still believed she was unlovable, not valued, not wanted. I helped her to see how she came to this belief because out of that belief, she had millions of negative and derogatory thoughts. So we reimagined a different wave collapse whereby her mother had never said that to her. Her mother's pregnancy was chosen. How differently would she feel about herself? So once we see the primary belief, And then learning to see our thought and not become our thought helps us access that place of pure possibility that I was speaking of. You identify the developmental arrest. You identify where the person is stuck. And yes, there's some aspect of going back in time, but they have to find the place where their thinking switched off from thinking to not thinking and believing whatever the belief system is at the moment uh, with whomever taught it and communicated it. Quite right. Certainly happens in uh, our field, doesn't it? I believe it happens everywhere. Oh, it does. I totally agree with you. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say something negative about the field because it's the human condition. It is the human condition. I think the only reason I said something about it is because we see so many people with needing second opinions who are caught in some kind of label quandary. And, so, and pain. so when you say it's the human condition, I am having a thought. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to represent how this works. I had a thought that came up when you said that. Mm-hmm. My thought was telling me it is the human condition, but it's not natural. In other words, it's not the human potential. 
What if we are in the infancy of our awareness and it's an error to conclude that that's human nature? It's just where we're stuck. We haven't yet reached the potential of our human nature. I believe strongly that the pivotal way to do that is to be able to notice and see our thoughts and feelings, which allows us to be responsive rather than reactive. Now, listeners, do you see how articulately Mel disagreed with me on that? (laughs) (laughs) That was so well said. I mean, because you really put it together very well. And I was unwittingly saying something aside reductionistically and and you helped me with the larger picture there. And, I, and it's really fun to have a conversation with a person like you because I definitely appreciate and stand corrected on that. It was a lapse of inattention there for a moment. And of course, the subtlety was if I were making an attempt to correct you, you wouldn't have been open as to what I was saying, typically. <laughs> right. perhaps, for you, perhaps for you personally, you might have been. But I was expanding upon the word. I was moving into the semantic of this human condition or human nature, people typically think that we're limited to that. Yeah, and that's so true. And, and that's what you know happened to me when I said it. And I, I, I didn't really take it personally. I just think it was great that you picked up on it because it is thinking about, it's not thinking about the evolution that we're all involved in. It's thinking about some representation of the quandary that we have in our lives every day. How do we deal with changing reality? How do we make the adjustment? How do we see the promise? How do we see the learning opportunity in the situation? Which is the challenge for all of us, you know, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Well, Mel, I'm telling you, this has been another fantastic. I'm so glad that the uh, computer didn't blow out on me like it did last time. And I just appreciate you coming on board and spending your time with us. Let's take a moment to talk about you have a webinar and you have a website. If you could tell us a bit about that, I appreciate it. Certainly. Well, my website is my name, melschwartz.com. That's M-E-L-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com. Um, you can reach me there. My blog is there with over 100 articles I've written. There are virtual live stream and online workshops that I'm offering, which begin in March. Uh, first is on overcoming anxiety and depression. I have a TEDx talk just out on that topic. And Perhaps most importantly, you can read about my new book, The Possibility Principle, uh, which is really the theme that we've been discussing at length today. And you can read all about the book and reviews at my website. I really appreciate that point because it's almost like you get over into a process. And of course, we're both involved with the process. And I'm sure the way you talk and the way you think, I can see that you're modifying your approach to things on a regular basis. You're learning as I am, hey, are we getting stuck here? Is there a problem with where we're going? And I, and I just appreciate the vitality and the interesting way that you put this together in such a provocative and positive way. I just think it's really great. And I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on board, Mel. And what we'll do, we need to come back and talk about your other book at some future time, or The Art of Intimacy and the Pleasure of Passion which is really going to be, I'm sure, some of these, some of these concepts, but we could take it a little further down the road. I would, I'd love to have you back. I'd love to join you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mel. You have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches 
with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.